Let us turn now to consider words you will find in the chapter we read, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, and we might read the last verse of the chapter. Chapter 15 and the last verse, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now I suppose that this is one of the chapters with which people are most familiar in the Bible because it tells us what has become commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son perhaps which ought to be better known as the parable of the lost son indeed it is claimed by many and of course with perfect justification that the passage really is uh, one in which three stories are used by Jesus to illustrate one great truth and the truth is that which is an answer to the objection raised by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. They thought that it was wrong for him to be so often in the company of uh, people who were known here as publicans and sinners. In other words, the very dregs of the society of Jesus' day. And their objection was that he, as a religious leader, ought not to be so often in the company of people like that. And it was an answer to that criticism and that observation and that objection that Jesus told these three stories. And as he tells them, he makes, he emphasizes the point three times in the telling of these stories. Three times he makes this emphasis that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Verse 7 over one sinner that repentance that, that the joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repented verse 10 there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented and now the text here it was meet that we should be merry and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and his lot was lost and is found. In other words, these stories are told by Jesus to emphasize and to illustrate this great truth that nothing occasions as much joy in heaven and nothing ought 
to occasion as much joy on earth as the conversion, and that really is the meaning of the word repentance in verses 7 and 10, as the conversion of a sinner. And therefore, in answering the objection of the Pharisees and the criticism, he is saying this, it is right, you are correct, in noticing that I am often in the company <coughs> of sinners, in the company of people who are the dregs of society. Or in other words, I am often <coughs> in the company of the lost. But I am in the company, not in any way to condone the life that they're living or the practices that they have but rather to rescue them, to deliver them from that kind of life. And uh, we notice that as Jesus uh, teaches clearly that that was the purpose of his mission into the world, so it must forever remain the purpose and the function of the followers of Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ in the world to be a part of it only for that purpose that she might rescue, deliver, save people from the unchristian influences that are brought to bear upon them in this world. So we notice therefore the setting of this well-known story. It was told to counter, to answer and to correct the criticism of the leaders of his day. And as the stories unfold, the lost coin the lost sheep and the lost son. You will see that Jesus is here like an artist, like a great artist, painting this picture. And as someone has put it, adding a splash of colour here and there in the picture so that as you look at the completed picture, at the whole painting, You've got to remember that this is a painting whose theme and whose great theme is joy because a sinner repents. And there's no point in coming to this painting and isolating from it this splash of colour in the top left hand corner where you see men and women, boys and girls dancing to the tune of music and saying, ah, Jesus condones dancing. I mean, that is a com making a complete nonsense of the teaching of this chapter. A complete nonsense of nowhere is Jesus talking about that. What he's talking about is the conversion of a sinner. And if there is this splash of, pick of, of, of colour in the corner of people dancing to the tune of music. It is there so that Jesus will illustrate 
quote joy. Conversion gives in heaven and in earth, on earth. In heaven and on earth. That's why it is there. Always try when you read a parable. In other words, when you read a parable, <coughs> always try to get to the heart of what Jesus is teaching in that parable. Because whenever he tells a parable, it is for the purpose of teaching one great lesson. There are many splashes of color in all his parables, but they all blend together to tell, to emphasize one great point. And this parable then emphasizes the joy that the conversion of a sinner occasions in heaven and on earth. <clears throat> it is true, he said, that I am with the lost. It is true I keep company with sinners. Not that I will become a part of the life that they live, but that they may come to share in the life that I have to offer them. And you know, this is another of the great teachings of Jesus and you notice this throughout his life and ministry and his teaching something I think that and if we're just sort of stopping here in the passing something that it would do us all well to remember that uh, you are when you become involved with people always watch be on your guard that your involvement doesn't mean that you drift away from your own Christian moorings. Make sure that you cultivate the mind that was in Christ. He always sought, and I'll tell you a story later on about this, he always sought to bring people to himself and to his way of thinking. Now then, as we turn to the story, particularly the story of the lost son, you will notice, first of all, how Jesus describes the lost condition of the sinner in his unsaved state. You can put it like this. He tells them the story in this way. I am coming to this world, he said, to save the lost, to rescue the sinner from the life of sin. Now he says... I see the sinner, the lost. I see the man who needs me in this world. Like this son, <clears throat> whose life history I'm going to tell you very briefly. And so he tells a story. Two brothers, they're at home with their father, and one of them, in accord with the law of the land, wasn't prepared to wait for his father's, for the inheritance he was going to get at his father's death. He wanted to get away there and then himself. He had ideas of his own which he wanted to put into practice. But he couldn't put them into practice without the wherewithal to do it. He needed money. And the only source of revenue that he had was from his inheritance which would become his in due course. But he didn't want to wait. So he asked his father for the share of the money that would come to him eventually. And his father, 
as far as we, all that Jesus tells us that his father was willing to give it. So when the son received his money, he went off, as Jesus tells us, to spend his money with riotous living. And then unfolds this graphic story of this young man in the far off land. And remember that Jesus is illustrating the condition of the sinner whom he wants to save. That's the point. And what do we gather from this story as it unfolds that we can apply to the life of the unsaved? Well, this, and of course we have to recognize at once, and Jesus himself, in other passages of the scripture, makes this point as a matter of fact. If the elder son is to be taken as, a, as, a, a, as another example of a person in an unsaved state, I'm only saying if, it goes to show you that the attitude that people have to life may differ, though both people may be in a lost state. In other words, this fellow, we don't know whether he's a young man or not, he was just a son. There are some people who think that the best way to enjoy life is, as Jesus tells us here, by a life of riotous living. They really go, as we said, they really go all the way. All the restraints are off. And their liberty becomes license, and they do what they like, when they like, where they like, and as they like. Now, you know full well that there are people like that. There are people who are naturally almost impossible to control. You cannot discipline them. It doesn't matter what you say. They don't listen. They just go their own way. And these people become real problems in society. There are problem children. And they grow up to be problem adolescents and problem problem adults. And today many of our prisons are bursting at the seams because there are people who are naturally like that. They won't listen to people. They are almost like brutes. You know there are people like that. Nothing that you do seems to restrain to have a restraining influence on people like that. Now then, the point that Jesus is making here that the Bible makes throughout is this. That to be in a lost condition, to be away from God and astray from Christ, you don't have to go to these lengths outwardly to be a prodigal or to be a lost son. Let's forget the word prodigal. To be a lost son. You don't have to be like that. There are people in this church tonight, in the community, in every community, who are perfectly respectable, very highly principled, with a veneer of religion, and who are extremely useful to their families, and to their communities, and in their places of work. And yet, they themselves will be the first to admit that they are unconverted. And these people are also away from God, astray from his grace. 
You see, the point that Jesus is making here is this. Here's a man who believed that he could live without his father's presence. Away from his father's home. Doing his own thing in his own way. With his own resources. And using for his own purposes the very things that his father had given him. Now there's a perfect example of a man in a lost condition. Like everybody here tonight who's Christless and godless and Christless. Whether he's young or old. Whether he's sowing his wild oats or living a highly principled and respectable life. That's not the point. The point is this. That a man is lost who doesn't live his life Godward and who doesn't give to God the things that God has given to him. The man who takes the life that God has given him, the time that God has given him, the energy that God has given him, the privileges and the possessions that God has given him and wastes them on himself without any reference at all to God. That's man in his lostness. But you see, there are some who seem to go further than other people. They want to ignore God. And they choose to forget God. And they live selfish and loveless and, in, and lives which are independent of God. They do the best they can to enjoy life and to get most out of life. In the same way as others sort of stay at home and seem to be respectable and religious. But you see, everyone needs Christ. And this is exactly the point that Jesus made to the Pharisees. You say to me that I eat and with publicans and sinners. You say to me that I receive sinners unto myself. I'm telling you, he says, I do. I, 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 I keep company with people who need me in the hope that they will see their need and come as sinners to a saviour just as that poor man lived his life away from his father's home until he came to see that what he needed most in life was to get back home and to come to his father. So you see, there are people who live this kind of life to get away from it all. People who want no restraints and no restrictions whatsoever. People who want to distance themselves from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. People who wish that there was no God to urge upon them his claims. People who wish that they could either not have him at all or even forget him. People who try to ignore him. People who want as much of this 
of God's word and God's gifts. They'll take as much as they can get. As long as they can do with it what they want. People who want to use their privileges and their possessions and their positions just to gratify themselves. And people who think that their contentment and their happiness and their enjoyment is to be gauged by the distance they can put between themselves and God. And this is what Jesus said. You know what he says? There are people like this lost son. Off they go. And I know that there are people like that probably in every household. And I've no doubt that there are people like that here tonight. And there may be very young people, children here tonight, who are like that. Who will tell you that they don't want God. It's amazing. It's amazing at how early an age a person can say these things and mean it. Truly wish that there was no Bible, no church, no Sunday, no God, no Christ. Life would be better were it not for these things. How many of you people, for example, tonight find it difficult to contend even with God's day, with Sunday. I heard a man last night preach praying in a prayer meeting and making reference to something that really struck me, a reference to the fact that the best television programs seem to be put on the telly on God's day. So that that, no doubt, may be, and remember, all the producers and the directors, those who govern these things, they would hold up their hands in horror to hear someone saying this publicly from the pulpit and to hear a man saying it in prayer that these things are put on as an inducement to people to break the Lord's day and then people sit and they fret and they wonder why on God's day and what's wrong with just switching the telly on and I wouldn't be surprised if you went about the end of Lewis tonight in the town of Stornoway and found pockets here and there where the television lighted See it blinking on the ceiling and on the walls of many a living room tonight. Just because people can't resist the temptation. Oh yes, it's the Lord's day, but then what's wrong with it? And who's behind all this? I know, as I said, many of these men, producers and directors and what have you, would hold up their hands in horror and say, how dare you suggest that I'm inducing anyone to switch on the television on what you claim to be the Lord's day. Oh yes, I know they would protests. But then you see, they don't realize that behind it all is someone who wants this world to be lost, who wants this Christ to be destroyed, who wants his day to be destroyed with himself. There's a devil at work in this world, and he's got lost men and women, boys and girls, in the grip in the palm of his hand he's got a tight hold over them and Jesus often said that and he told these religious leaders of his day I am here he says to rescue men and women boys and girls from the lostness of sin and from the power of Satan and if you find fault with me for doing that so be it 
I tell you, he says, people are like this son who thought that he could have a great life and a happy life and a wonderful life away from his home and from his father and from his brother. Get away from it all and get rid of it all and enjoy life as I want to enjoy it. And Jesus said he did it. And so can you. Make no mistake about it. You can do the same thing. You can live as though God did not exist. You can live independently of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've no doubt that you'll enjoy it. But remember this. Your enjoyment of it will come to an end. That's what Jesus here says. This young fellow, or well this fellow, whether he's young or not. He really enjoyed life. But there was one problem. There was one problem. You see... He couldn't make his money last forever. And all the avenues that he tried couldn't remain open forever. And all the people whom he enjoyed life who he enjoyed life with couldn't be with him forever. You see, this is the problem. A famine arose in the land and two things happened two things changed the circumstance in which he found himself changed and he himself changed have you noticed this this is what happens always in life the things that appeal to a 20-year-old don't appeal so much now to the same person when he becomes 50 years of age. And of course, this is, this is too obvious even to, to, to make the point. The places that a 20 and a 30-year-old will go to, one of these days, that person won't be able to go to these places. And you see, this is the problem. That circumstances outside yourself, out with yourself change and you yourself change. Because the problem with man apart from God is this. He must have something to occupy him. He must go somewhere. He must do something. He must be with someone to enjoy himself. That's a fact of life. Then you see, when your legs can't carry you to these places, even though you may retain your affection for them, the avenues dry up. Is that not the case? And then you find that that which was giving you so much enjoyment isn't giving you that enjoyment at all. And Jesus here, remember, and he's talking to a Jewish audience. And he says, this man, he says, he began to be in want. His money ran out. He lost his job. There was no employment at all. The rate of unemployment in that area was very, very high. And remember, he's talking about a Jew. And then he found a job, he says, one day. Herding pigs. Looking after pigs. Now, for a Jew, that was the end of the line. 
That was the end of the line for a Jew. But you see, Jesus wasn't finished. He was so hungry, he said that it wasn't just that this fellow started herding the swine. He was herding with them, in other words. It wasn't just that he was trying to lead them to places where they could get something to eat. But he was becoming one of them himself in as He was wanting to eat what they were eating. Because there was no one to give to him. Nothing. And here Jesus is picturing the sheer and utter hopelessness and emptiness and futility of a Christless life. What's he saying? He's saying what we were seeing there in the book of Ecclesiastes for the past weeks. Jesus is saying it. There's nothing in that life. It's just like an empty shell. And when it, when it really comes to bit and you begin to be in need, there's nothing in it that will meet your needs. You ask people here tonight, converted, are people perhaps in the throes of conversion? who are coming face to face with the reality that the life that they thought was so full that after all there's nothing in it and there's nothing to it so Jesus speaks about the lostness of man in sin he has nothing at the end of the day to turn to nothing at all not a thing He can't even turn to his friends. There was no one, he says, to help him. No one would give him anything to eat. And then something very interesting. This interesting splash of color. Jesus says to this man, he began to think. And he began to think about, he came to himself. He began to think of the father that he left. And the home that he left. And the comforts of the home. And the food at home. And he dearly wished to go home. But he was afraid to go home. So he began to make up a prayer in his mind. Well I would love to go. And I'll say to my father. Look I'm not worthy but I'm coming. I don't want to be a son. Make me a servant. That will do just a servant in your house. And so he got up. And he came home, but when he came to his father, all he said to him was, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's all he said when he came. Now here Jesus is eliciting something else. That what this what man needs in his lostness and his sin is to repent. Or and the meaning of the word repentance, as I said to you, is to be converted. Now, there are two things that always come into repentance. And the Bible, if the Bible emphasizes anything, it emphasizes this. A man cannot be converted until he does two things. Or rather, I suppose to, put, to, to be theologically correct, there must be two things always in conversion. And these two things are repentance and faith and you know Jesus wonderfully illustrates that in the story what is repentance ah says someone it's to be sorry for your sins no it's not ah that's not enough 
I know that there's a kind of teaching abroad that would emphasize, that would suggest to you that all you have to do is go down on your knees and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. Ah, well, wherever you got that picture of repentance, you never got it from the Bible, I can tell you that. There is no such picture in the whole of the Bible. What then is it? It's to be, as someone put it, it's to be so sorry for your sins that you've got to leave them. That's it. Oh, we all know what it is to be sorry for our sins. The poor man here tonight who knows what it is to be in the innocent of drink and who's been a mess of his life and who comes home. We've all seen and heard this. Many of them, if not all of them, say, well, never again. That's being sorry, full of remorse. But all too often, that same man will go home tomorrow night in the same condition. Because he hasn't repented. What is repentance? It is to be so sorry for your sins that you leave that life behind you. That's what the project, that's what this man did. He got up and he left the far country. There was nothing there for him. But the degradation of his lostness away from the father's home, so he leaves it. And then there's a second strand that must always be in conversion, faith. What is faith? Faith is coming to Christ. And here Jesus illustrates that. This man, he left his sin and he came to the Father. Now, of course, this is all that the parable is teaching us. That this is what conversion is all about. You leave your sin behind and you come to God or you come to Christ in faith. You recognize your condition. You recognize the slavery of the sin of the life that you're living. You recognize the awfulness of a sinful state. And you are made willing to break with sin. You are made willing to distance yourself. Not now from God, but from sin. Remember the classic story of the girl who came to the session looking for admission to the Lord's table. And they asked her, what was the difference that she found out, that she found out in her life since she was converted? This is it, she said. Before I used to run after sin. Now, she said, I'm running away from sin. And that, I believe, is what, is, what happens in the life of every convert. You don't want that life now. It's behind you. And you wish it were further behind you than it is. You wish it had never been there. That's it. And the desire that you have to come to the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. Is that the way you are? Well, if you're a convert, that's the way you ought to be. And that's the way you and I ought to become more and more. It's a life of running from sin and coming to the Savior. That's the way the Bible always pictures the life of a Christian. And I think today that we have to get back to that more and more and more. Acknowledge your unworthiness, your unfitness, your sinnership, your awfulness, your lostness, your deadness. Father, I come to thee. 
receive me as a sinner or I'm lost. And here is what Jesus is saying. We ought to make merry and be glad. This is the sinner at home. Your brother who was lost is found. Your brother who was dead is alive. No wonder we should be merry. There is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And there is. There is. This is the most momentous event in the life of any individual, young or old, in the world tonight. And look at this, if I may just put it as simply to you as as possible. Look at this church night in Stornoway. And think of heaven. Think of the angels. Think of God. Think of Christ and the Spirit. And the spirits of people who love Jesus in the world, who have gone to heaven. Think of all these in heaven tonight. And think of this church. And think of the wonder of this one sinner in Stornoway being converted tonight. The source of joy in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. And no wonder this picture, this painting is so wonderful. No wonder it's so full of color and so full of life and so full of meaning. Look at what he's illustrating. Look at what he's telling you. This is the connection between conversion and joy in heaven. This is the connection. Why are they, why are they, and I believe that he's talking not just as verse 7 tells us, I say that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner. He's not confining it to the angels that he refers to in verse 10. He's speaking about the inhabitants of heaven. That's what God is. And look at the joy that is in the heart of the Father. When someone whom he has purposed from all eternity to save responds to the call of God to believe. Look at the joy in the heart of the Savior who came into the world to die that sinners might be converted and someone for whom he died now responds to his claims who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Look at the joy in the heart of the Holy Spirit when he sees his power and his work moving a soul to come in faith and in penitence to the feet of Jesus. And dare I say it, think of the joy in the hearts of those who are tonight at the throne of God in heaven, singing glory to the Lamb. Those who loved him, who served him in the world and who prayed for the conversion of souls while they were in the world and the Lord took them to himself. And they are there tonight full of joy. Can joy be added to? Of course. Of course. Dear me, that's what eternity is all about in heaven above. It's going on in the perfection of holiness. Going on to know more of what has given you that joy in heaven above. And as I said, dare I say it, and I will. I believe myself that this is one of the sources of joy of the church in heaven tonight in the presence of the Father. That, this, that God in some wonderful way 
communicates to them the knowledge that another has been converted in this sinful world that they've left behind. There is joy in the presence of And then the angels themselves. Ah, my friend, we've been speaking about this in the primitive of late. Angels, what a minister they have in this world. What service they render, what are they? They are creatures who serve God in glory tonight. And this is the picture the Bible gives you of these creatures. They are sent by God on errands, missions of mercy and communication from heaven to earth. This is what they did for Jacob. He saw them, angels of God, ascending and descending on that ladder from heaven to earth. They're in this building tonight. The angel of the Lord encamped around and encompasses all those about the doom fear and them delivered. He, they are ministering spirits. You and I don't see them. Maybe there are some who have. Maybe there are some who feel their presence from time to time. What joy they have in serving their Lord. And when one soul is converted in the world, more joy for the angels because more service to render. Do you know what I think? Part, do you know what I think constitutes some of the glory, the joy in heaven? It is this that the spirits who are made perfect in the presence of God are perfect in the service that they render to the Lord. And the more you give, have you noticed this? If you really are full of love for Christ, you can't get enough to do for him. You can't get enough to do for him. And the, the spirits of the just people in the presence of God tonight are full of love and therefore full of service. And the angels serve. And the more they have to do, the more joy they have. Think of, if this is true of one sinner, oh, what must it be like at a time of revival? What must it be like? When the angels, if one can speak with reverence, are given so much to do, so much more to do, at a given time. But you see, Jesus isn't talking about revival. He's talking about the conversion of one soul. And you know, my friend, the gospel comes tonight. Not just to this congregation. It comes to you as an individual. It comes to you as one person. One sinner in whom God takes such an interest, such an interest that he brought you here tonight so that you could hear the gospel. You of all people in the world tonight. You. And this is the question I want to ask you. It's a serious one. And I find it a very solemn one and in many, many cases a most moving question. And I want to leave it with you. As I bring this service to a close. The life that you live tonight is it a source 
and a means of joy in heaven. Or, can one say it? A source. I don't believe there's joy in hell, there isn't. But in some way, in an evil way, in an awful way, there is an element of some kind of satisfaction in hell. In hell. Now then, is your life tonight, has this great event taken place in your life? Have you been converted and thereby become a means and a source of joy in heaven and on earth? Or is your life still in the grip of sin, in the grip of Satan, and if it is, and this is the awful thought, your life is a source of evil satisfaction to him and to his emissaries. Oh, wouldn't it be a wonderful, wouldn't it be wonderful tonight if you became the convert that would be the means of joy in heaven. Would you not want that? Surely you would. And look, if I may end on this note, look again at the emphasis that he places here. There is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. You know that there are many stories that one could tell, and this is what I said to you. I'll tell you a story about this before I close. So I'll close with one of the many stories that one could tell. One sinner. And you could be that sinner. But then you see, you, what could you do? You may say to yourself, ah, well, if you only knew the kind of person I am, if you only knew who I am. Ah, my friend, that's not the point. The point is that God can do wonderful things through one sinner. Many, many, many years ago, a horseman was going through a particular area in England and he stopped his horse at a drinking well. And as he tied his horse up there so the horse could get a drink, another horseman came along, dismounted, tied up his horse, and while the horses were having a drink, the second horseman said to the first, he spoke to him about eternity and about his soul. And they parted company, made off in opposite directions. But the words that that second horseman spoke were blessed. To the first to the first man, he became he was converted and became a Christian missionary. And often he wondered who had been the instrument of his conversion. And for many years he looked for that man in vain. And not too many years afterwards, in a parcel of books sent to this missionary from his native land. Not so many years afterwards did he open a biography 
the story of James Brennard Taylor. And this was the biography of that man's devoted life. And in the frontispiece, as he turned the pages over, he saw there the face that had haunted him for many and many a year in his sleeping and in his waking hours, the face of the man who had led him to the Saviour. He was but one man led by that other man. But then you see in the hand of God, look at what that one man was able to do. Ah, what God could do with your life tonight. Just you. Just you. Perhaps sitting here and wondering, wondering in your heart what the Lord could do for you and what the Lord could do with you. Well, I couldn't tell you. Words would fail me to tell you what the Lord could do for you. And I don't know what the Lord could do with you. And little do you know how he could use you, just you, for the blessing of maybe one other person or many more. There is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. What a home you would have tonight if you went home with the Lord as your Savior. Let us pray. Bless us, Lord, do thou bless us as we bow before thee. We thank thee for the word of thy grace and for the, for the power that belongs to thee. Convince us, O God, of our sin and help us by grace to turn from it to thyself as our Savior. For Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat>